Hello, friends. This is the Neatarts Friends Church podcast. We are Jesus people, kingdom of God people, welcoming, yearning, sharing. And we're glad you're connecting here with us. We'd love to connect in person as well. If you're inclined to support this podcast or for more information, just hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. That's neatartsfriends.org. Let's jump into today's sermon. Our brains are wired to use shortcuts to save time and energy in making decisions. And we do it all the time. And one of the shortcuts that our brains use to save time and energy is to blindly follow the advice, suggestions, instructions of others who happen to be in positions of authority. Psychologists call it authority bias. And we use it all the time. Our society is built upon relying on the knowledge of those who have gone before us. It's reported that people consume over five times as much information in a day as they did 25 years ago. And with supercomputers in all of our pockets, that rate just continues to increase. Uh, In the 1950s, it's reported that it took 50 years for knowledge in medicine to double. By the 1980s, it was doubling every seven years. By 2010, it was doubling every three and a half years. So you can see we live in this world where we rely on the knowledge of those who have gone before us, a world that relies on knowledge, expertise, instructions of authority figures. And it seems reasonable to trust credible experts in their field instead of approaching each problem acting like we have to do original research and find an original solution we follow what someone else says that we should do after all we assume that they have more knowledge or skills than we do so instead of thinking for ourselves for a brief moment in time we stop thinking for ourselves and simply do whatever we're being told it's authority bias A classic example comes from Michael Cohen and Neil Davis in their book, Medication Errors, Causes, and Prevention. So the the story goes that a patient was suffering from pain and infection in their right ear. So the physician ordered eardrops to be administered to the right ear, which seems pretty straightforward. Instead of writing out completely the location, right ear, on the prescription, the doctor did some abbreviating so that the instructions read, place in R, ear. And upon receiving the prescription, the duty nurse promptly put the required drop number of drops in the patient's rear. <laughs> authority bias in the moment the nurse and the patient it would seem both were blindly following the instructions as they understood them of someone in authority instead of thinking for themselves like um wait a minute is this really going to help an ear infection like will i be able to hear better 
after this? Will my ear pain go away because of this? So, uh, <laughs> in, in our Sunday gathering, we had this discussion question. Uh, you can reflect on this, or if you're listening with someone, you can chat with them. What are some of the ways that authority bias serves creation well and contributes to the common good? And in what ways can authority bias become dark, destructive, and manipulative? So take a couple minutes and reflect on that. The eardrop story is laughable, but the dark side of authority bias is not laughable. In fact, it's terrifying. The pioneer researcher Stanley Milgram's study on authority bias is chilling. Subjects were brought in and lots were drawn and they designated who would be in the teacher role and who would be in the student role. And the students were strapped to a chair with electrodes on their arms and the teachers were told that they were studying uh, how electric shock disrupts memory and concentration leading to errors and they were told the shocks wouldn't cause any permanent tissue damage. But what the teachers didn't know was that all the people in the student role were actually actors. The whole thing was rigged. And the real question that was being studied was how much suffering are ordinary people willing to inflict on an innocent person because an authority figure is telling them to do so. So the teachers, or the people in the teacher role, I should say, were told by the researchers in the gray lab coats that they need to read each question aloud to the student If the student gets the question wrong, then the teacher is to announce the voltage of the shock that the student is about to receive, and then they pull a lever to administer the shock. And with each wrong question, the voltage went up 15 volts, with the final possible shock being 450 volts. And so, you know, as it went, the students cried out, In increasing agony and screams, they were fake, of course, but they begged for someone, you know, get me out of these restraints. They writhed, they shrieked, they finally slumped in like a shocked stupor of paralysis. And the question was, how many people in this teacher role would just keep on reading questions and keep on pulling the lever? And how many people would be like, no, I refuse to participate. So before the study, the faculty, the grad students, the psychology majors at Yale University where this was taking place, uh, they were asked, you know, how many people are going to go all the way to 450 volts? Answers ranged, they said like, well, it'll be 1% to 2% of people. A group of psychiatrists said, no, it'll be one in a thousand. The actual results, not one person 
in the teacher role refused to participate. When the students began screaming in agony, two-thirds of the participants pulled the lever for every single question. And uh, a third of them, they stopped pulling the lever, but they kept reading the next question. So as Stanley Milgram looked at the data at the end of this, he found an extreme willingness to go to almost any lengths on the command of an authority. Like the subjects blindly followed the instructions of the researcher in the position of authority. Now, full disclosure, this particular study came to be questioned by some. So it's worth saying, like, this doesn't stand alone. But since the 1960s, plenty more researchers have done more research, pushing back and forth, trying to understand authority bias. And the, the chilling question is how many people throughout history have made decisions that were ultimately harmful to others because someone in authority was saying, this is the way to go. This is the right way. This is what is best. How many people in this world give their loyalty and their allegiance to systems, to celebrities, to authorities that they ultimately allow to do their thinking for them? How many people swallow whatever their cable news says or their favorite celebrity or speaker or podcast or favorite politician or political party or professor or author or satellite radio channel or the Facebook algorithm? How many people just swallow that hook, line, and sinker giving their loyalty to that system, to that authority? Their authority figure could say whatever they want, get away with whatever they want, and their base would nod their heads, follow them, and support them. Giving your loyalty to a system feels better on one hand. It lessens the anxiety because now you have a home team, a home turf. Now you don't have to feel alone in the world. This world's full of complex questions. And if you have a home team, then you have someone to do the heavy lifting for you. The supercomputers in our pockets use algorithms to give us more and more of what we're already looking for. And so everyone goes deeper and deeper into their echo chamber. And as many of you have heard, it, it, it said if something is free, if basically if you're not the customer, that means you're the product. So companies, political interest groups, businesses are trying to buy the right to get their propaganda and their advertisement in front of your eyes. And they're going to feed you more and more of what their records show you already like. So the question is, what won't we buy if the right people are telling us we need it? And what harm, direct or indirect, will we refuse to participate in if the right people are telling us, no, that's the right way to go? What won't we agree with and give our hearty assent, hearty nod to if the right systems are advocating it? Think about a, a speaker you really like or a news channel you really like, a political party, a celebrity, and ask yourself, 
when is the last time that you disagreed with them on something pretty important? And if you can't recall when that was, then it is worth asking if you've given your loyalty to that system, to that authority, and to what degree you might be letting them think for you. It's not a conservative phenomenon. It's not a liberal phenomenon. It's a human phenomenon, and it can function as a blind spot. You see, it's, it's easy to look at other people and say, oh, they're succumbing to authority bias. Look at how wrong, look at how ridiculous their leader is, and they're just blindly following. It's not nearly as easy to recognize the ways that you might be doing the same thing, blindly following your authority, your system. Somehow, your authority bias just makes sense to you. So, another discussion question, something to reflect on. What are some ways that you might safeguard yourself from blindly following an authority or a system without becoming unteachable, arrogant, just a, a lone ranger? So spend some time reflecting on that. All right. You may have been wondering, are we going to get around to scripture? <laughs> Yeah, we, we are. This brings us to the words of James. We're continuing our journey through the book of James. James 5, verse 12. James writes, above all, or it could be translated before all, my brothers and sisters, do not make an oath, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will fall into judgment. Now, James was certainly not just speaking on his own. He was remembering the words of his brother, half-brother, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says in his famous Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath but fulfilled to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, Two centuries before Jesus was born, the Roman oath was coming on the scene. It was called the Roman Sacramentum. It started out as a voluntary, temporary oath of allegiance that soldiers took to fellow soldiers and commanding officers before specific battles or revolutions. But then it's kind of like Caesar clued in on the power of authority bias, he recrafted the sacramentum 
into an oath of allegiance to himself that all commanders and soldiers were required to make. It was the most strict of all the oaths in the Roman Empire. Soldiers promised to obey their commanders under any circumstances at any time, wherever they led them, that they would not desert them. Commanding officers were given permission to put to death without trial any soldier who didn't follow the oath. And Roman religion was tied into the entire thing. As soldiers believed that their commander's acts were just in the sight of the gods, like full of justice, the common oath in the empire became by the genius of the emperor or by the fortune of the emperor. So can you hear the authority bias there, like just blindly following the advice, the suggestion, the instruction of those in authority? The sacramentum had the psychological effect of possibly helping soldiers no longer feel guilty for the act of killing. Uh, it could also do uh, real moral harm to them, uh, but possibly helping them no longer feel guilty for that in the actual moment. And rather than trying to sort out the morality of their orders, the sacramentum oath place soldiers under the moral responsibility of the commanding officers who were said to be under the gods. So with this in mind, can you see why Jesus would say, don't take an oath. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Can you see why James would repeat it saying like, look, anything else is from the evil one or otherwise you're going to fall under judgment. It's not that Jesus wants us to become rogue agents, unteachable, unwilling to follow the instructions of others, as if we are know-it-alls. It's that Jesus doesn't want us promising our loyalty and allegiance to any system, to any empire, to any person other than him, his kingdom. So I can hear this sentiment echoed in Peter and the apostles in one of their first acts of civil disobedience, Acts 5.29, they say, we must obey God rather than human beings. And for the first three centuries of Christianity, Christians were firmly against taking oaths. They were martyred because of their refusal to give the common oath by the genius of the emperor by the fortune of the emperor, Caesar's Lord, that kind of an oath, they said, no, we won't do it. And so over those 300 years, Christianity flourished. It spread rapidly among marginalized populations. People found a community of love like they had never known. And so the Roman emperor, Emperor Constantine, adopted, ended up adopting a different strategy. It's like, instead of killing all these Christians, if you can't beat them, join them. He converted to Christianity and he proclaimed the entire Roman Empire to be Christian. It was the first Christian nationalism. And suddenly it no longer took any courage to be a Christian. So ironically, the theologians of the day, like Gregory of uh, Nazianzus, Augustine, they begin creating some wiggle room for oaths 
they started saying, well, maybe it's okay if we make an oath, like if the authority is actually demanding an oath. And, and that's the way that the majority of Christians approached oaths for centuries. They said things like, well, I think there's a difference between taking an oath and making an oath. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther followed in their footsteps. And Christian nationalism has a long history. Hitler's Nazi forces, they weren't formed primarily by atheists. Like Hitler wouldn't have had an army if he didn't have multitudes of soldiers who called themselves Christians and were willing to take an oath. It's authority bias. But there were always Christians who refused to join with the Christian nationalism because they saw Christianity that was a countercultural movement. So there were always those on the fringes who were saying like, wait a minute, I don't think that's what Jesus taught. I don't think Jesus wants us to swear an oath, to give our allegiance to a system. So uh, within Christian history, people like the monastic movement, the, like the monks, the Franciscans from St. Francis and his movement, the Waldensians, the Hussites, the Bohemian Brethren, the Radical Reformers, the Anabaptists, the Swiss Brethren, Cathari, Moravians, the Quakers, the Friends. These are people who said, I don't, I don't think that Jesus wants us giving our allegiance to a system. You may say, well, did they make any difference or were they just like out there on the margins? Well, a few short examples. So part of St. Francis's rule of life, like this way of life for everyone who is part of the, the Franciscan movement, they uh, said, we will not possess lethal, lethal weapons and we will not take oaths. And there were enough people living by that way of life that historians have actually credited the rule of St. Francis for partial responsibility for the demise of the entire feudal system of nobility and serfdom. Uh, the Quakers, they were responsible for standing up against slavery, organizing the Underground Railroad, which helped free like 100,000 enslaved people. Uh, similarly, uh, they're known for, uh, it's kind of like an Underground Railroad movement, an effort that happened uh, during the Holocaust. It ran from France to England, from France to the U.S. They, they helped thousands of refugees fleeing from Nazi forces. Uh, like one of the movements called Kinder Transport, uh, they helped like 10,000 children flee. Uh, some other parts of the movement, they helped Jewish people, gypsies, Gypsies, gay people, Polish people, disabled people, black people, to be able to make it to some place of safety. So do not take an oath. Do not promise your loyalty to a system, to an authority. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Now, what meaning does this teaching of Jesus 
and James have on the Oregon coast in 2023? Like, what is it that takes your yes away from you? And what is it that takes your no away from you? What system, what celebrity, what authority acquires your loyalty and your allegiance? Well, I offer the following reflections, not with certainty, like this is it for sure, but more with humble curiosity for you to really consider. So the supercomputer in your pocket, if you have a smartphone, it's captured nearly all of us. Uh, it doesn't matter for me personally if I'm at Cooper's karate class or Autumn's uh, theater class or mechanic shop or the doctor's office, anywhere with people. It seems like everyone's sitting with their eyes glued to their device and scrolling away. And studies show that our devices are making our long-term memory worse because we're focusing on so many things at once. We suffer from fear of missing out even though we are simultaneously ignoring the world right in front of us, failing to appreciate what's right in front of us. We become more emotionally fragile, wanting everyone to give us a big yes, a big thumbs up, a big smile, a big heart, a big like, while simultaneously giving the people right around us a big no, I'm not available. Uh, MRIs, uh, functional brain imaging tests, find that what's going on with our brain activity when we're viewing our smartphone, if we are a religious person, what's going on in our brain is uncannily similar to what's happening when we're viewing uh, imagery from our own religion. It's actually, our brain looks very similar when we're viewing our phone as to when we're engaging with our religion. Uh, our brains respond the same way to our phones, they've found, as they do when we are in the proximity of our significant other or our family members. So uh, researchers say it's not just that you are addicted to your phone. If you're talking about the way your brain is responding to it, you actually love your phone. You, you love it. It's the same kind of thing is going on in your brain. So even though we, we probably will never come to the end of our life and say, I should have spent more time on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or reading articles or watching YouTube, even though we probably would never say that at the end of life, there we are spending an average of like three to five hours a day on our phone. So with all the addictive properties and the religious dynamics and the love dynamics and the supercomputers with their algorithms that are meant to turn us into the product, the question is, okay, how can our yes really be yes? How can our no really be no? And what to do about it? Well, what would happen if you took a, a technology fast? Maybe a day, a week, 
maybe a week without your phone. Uh, maybe saying, I'm only going to use it to call and text at certain times of day. Whatever you come up with, might you go through some withdrawals? Yeah, you might. But might your yes and your no actually become your own in a different way? And the thinking here is, why not try something different? Like, why not try stepping back and seeing how you feel and seeing what you're thinking about and what you're reading and how you're spending your time and who you're spending your time with and how the kind of love that you give changes. Some people might go so far as saying, I'm going to make this a regular practice. Some people might say, I'm going to change my relationship with my phone or I'm going to ditch my smartphone altogether. And I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all answer. But it's a question that requires vulnerability. Is my yes really yes? Is my no really no if I'm glued to a supercomputer? Do not take an oath. Do not promise your loyalty to a system or to an authority. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. So that's one reflection. I have two more. So another idea. So each and every person is a vast mosaic of yeses and nos and I don't knows and I don't cares. But not many of us are really that settled with our sense of yes and no and I don't know and I don't care. And so if we aren't settled, we might do a number of things to try to feel more settled. We're likely to try to find a home team, a home turf, an authoritative voice that explains why our version of yes and no is the best. This is the best answer. Someone to tell us why we're right. Someone to even reduce the complexity and tell us whether we should say yes and no. And if we're the argumentative type, we might try to get other people to agree with our yes and our no. Uh, like, come on, validate me. I need you to think what I think. Now, each and every human is this vast mosaic of yes and no, but the home team voices, the talkers, the authorities, they often reduce people to a very small number of yeses and nos. They tend to see people as kind of one thing. And that one thing, that yes or that no, is a problem. So, like, it's all those darn liberals or those uptight conservatives or those transgenders or those black people or those Hispanics or those gay people or those white evangelicals or that woke crowd or the cops or the potheads or the baby boomers or the millennials or Gen Z, on and on. So here's my humble suggestion. Go find one of those people who the home team, whoever your home team is, who they say they're the problem. And invite them on some walks, maybe fishing or coffee or drinks or dessert, something. And you're not doing this so that we can try to turn your yes into their yes or their no into your no. 
It's in it so that you can convince them you're right or that they can convince you that they're right. It's not so that you can hammer away on the issues at all. But might it be possible that there's more that connects you than that divides you? And this is to help you detox, as it is, as it were, from what the system, the authority, has been saying about that person. And instead, to drench yourself in what the Spirit is saying about that person. So your task is to start getting to know this person and stop reducing them to just one yes or one no and experience being open with them about your yes, your no, your I don't know, your I don't care in their presence. Don't argue about any of them. Just be open. You like Dutch Brothers? I think it's the worst coffee in town. You like the Seahawks? I like the Seahawks too. You like cats? I like cats. Tell me about your cat. And so on. At the end of history... Jesus is the ultimate judge of each of our vast mosaics of yes, no, I don't know, I don't care. You're not the judge. Jesus is the judge. But this this project, this relationship is what does it feel like to share your yes, your no, I don't know, I don't care with this other person to learn where you're similar, to learn where you are different. And what's it feel like to be fully connected to this person and to yourself? What's it feel like to realize, hey, they can't be reduced to just one yes or one no. They're a vast mosaic. And to pay attention to the Spirit of God interacting in that space in between you. How can you sense that this person is of infinite worth to God? Like, God created this person with a heart rimming over with love. And despite your differences, can you see that the world is somehow a better place because they are here? Can you celebrate who they are with your similar and different yeses and nos? Can you celebrate who you are with your mosaic of yes, no, I don't know, I don't care? Do not take an oath. Do not promise your loyalty to a system, to an authority. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. So one final idea, and that is explore the promises and the vows that you made to yourself earlier in life. Sometimes we make promises to ourselves that no longer serve us well and so we are the authority in the authority bias it's like we're not thinking for ourselves right now because a past version already said well this is what i will do this is what i won't do so you said i'll never live anywhere else or i'll never get married or i'll never change my view on this or i'll never have surgery or i'll never be like my parents in this way or i'll, I'll never let someone control me in that way or maybe you promised an always, like I'm always going to tell customers or clients yes, no matter what. I'll, I'll always do it this way. Both our yeses and our nos that we promise 
earlier in life can end up costing us and, and hurting our loved ones and hurting others. And that old version of you didn't know what you know right now. That childhood promise that was probably helpful at one time may not be helpful now. It might be something you've outgrown. And so the question comes, okay, what does it look like if you let go of that old yes and old no and open the doors wide and, and say, Holy Spirit, please lead me. How am I supposed to live right now? What's allegiance to Jesus look like and what's it mean right now? What's it look like to love God and to love others right now and to not be a slave to something I said back when? Do not take an oath. Do not promise your loyalty, your allegiance to a system, to an authority. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Thank you for joining us for a Sunday sermon from Neatart's Friends Church. We hope you'll join us soon for one of our in-person worship gatherings. For more information, hop on over to neatartsfriends.org. God's peace be with you, friends.